All right. Good morning, church. My name is Tara Hageman, and today I'm reading the text is uh, Matthew 18, 21 through 35. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At the time, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged, and they went and told their master everything they, that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all your debt, all the debt that was yours, because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant, just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Thank you, Tara. Yeah, give her a hand. That was amazing. It is not easy reading in front of a room full of people. That is challenging stuff. You did it excellently. Well, good morning, everybody. Those of you who don't know me, I'm Doug. I'm one of the pastors here. It's my privilege to come and bring the word this morning. Greetings to everybody who's at home or wherever you're at uh, here today watching online. We're continuing here in our second week of a series entitled Stories Jesus Told, also called Parables, these short stories that Jesus would use to illustrate or talk about, in this case, the kingdom of God or things about the gospel that he tried to kind of illuminate through the power of storytelling. And Jesus was a fantastic storyteller, as we see in today's example. And uh, today we're going to learn a little bit more about what this story teaches us about how to forgive. How to forgive. Probably one of the most important, most significant things that we are taught to do as followers of Jesus one of the most significant things that we are called to experience for ourselves as followers of Christ. It's literally kind of the entry ticket into a life with Jesus is to recognize and to accept the forgiveness that we have in Jesus because of his work upon the cross on our behalf. And so we ask this question, what does the story tell us about how to forgive well, I want to start off by maybe asking this other question. Why is this so important? Why is it so critical for us? Maybe we need a refresher as to why it's so important. Hebrews 12, 15 offers us 
some insight into this. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. This fantastic reminder about the need for forgiveness and reconciliation, right? Because if we don't manage the relationships that we have in our lives, if we don't manage our relationship even with ourself, we'll talk a little bit about what self-forgiveness means and why that's so critical to this whole process. I want to share just briefly, some of you know that uh, for the last couple of years, I've been training as a hospital chaplain. Uh, it's been an extraordinary season for being in the hospital with people as they face a variety of different challenges, whether they're life-threatening or whether those pains of hospital uh, admission kind of bring to the surface all kinds of other pain. And I heard something during my training that really has stayed with me and I think has something to do with what we're going to talk about today. And it's this anecdote that one of our chaplains shared that when she was on a unit with during one of her early days as a chaplain, she encountered a nurse who was very experienced and specialized in pain management. They have nurses and staff members who specialize in managing people's pain. They come in in a lot of pain, and there's just a nuanced art to how to manage that. And this particular nurse, who had been doing this for like 30 years, uh, was an atheist and well-known to the staff. Lovely person, wonderful collaborator, uh, with the chaplains, but herself an atheist, but held this understanding from her experience that we found profound. She said, I come to a patient, and if they're in pain, I have a protocol. You have this list, a checklist of ways that you try to address that pain from minimally invasive to pretty significant, you know, heavy doses of medication to manage that pain. But if I find a patient that has chronic pain, and if that chronic pain is not diminished at all, by the administration of powerful drugs, then I call the chaplain because I know that their pain is rooted in something spiritual. Just take that in for a second. That our physical pain, significant, life-altering pain, can be and sometimes is rooted in spiritual pain. I overlay that onto something else that I heard, that there are four qualities to spiritual health that they monitor. Meaning, hope, relatedness, and forgiveness. When we talk about spiritual pain in people's lives, the number one area of spiritual pain comes from, you guessed it, forgiveness. 44% of patients report that part of their spiritual distress is related to spiritual pain. And of that 44%, 70 to 86% of those people address issues of forgiveness of self as their primary area of distress, which may or may not be contributing to the physical pain that they feel. So friends, I just offer that to you as something to consider as we talk about this area of forgiveness, as we think about the work involved, the risks, the challenges, the goal, the purpose, the meaning, all of it, to paint a picture of why it is that we're asked to lean into this story about forgiveness. Let's pray together 
as we enter into God's word. Heavenly Father God, Lord, this feels like it is so central to the gospel, so central to your purpose for our lives, not just because you call us to this ideal, to this value, to this notion of forgiveness because of itself. Lord, you call, it to, you call us to it for us. You want to grant us freedom. You want to grant us healing, not just spiritual, but emotional and physical healing as well. So Lord, I pray that by your mercy, you would draw to the surface our own stories as we listen to the story of Jesus, that you would draw to the surface our own story, our own need, that out of those painful spaces of need, you would meet us with your grace and you'd begin to walk us on a journey of forgiveness that would lead us to greater measures of freedom and of healing and of wholeness that perhaps we didn't think were possible. So we thank you, God. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's this passage here at the end that kind of summarizes the risk. Verse 32 says this, Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant. He said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And in anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat you unless each of you, unless you forgive your brother or your sister from your heart. In a nutshell, I think unforgiveness gives us the risk of suffering. We suffer in unforgiveness. The weight of it. Whether we are the ones that need to be forgiven or whether we are the ones that hold unforgiveness over the lives of other people, suffering happens. It's a painful place. And so we're called... So how do we do it? Three steps. It's going to sound really simple, but I think it's actually quite difficult. From the small things that happen, that build up over time, to the big hurts, crushing blows uh, that we tend to face as we live long enough. Three things we need to do to forgive others, maybe even ourselves. And it's all kind of packed up tidy here in verse 27. The servant's master did three things, took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. Took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. What does that mean? I think the first step is that when we have somebody that we need to forgive, somebody has done something against us, right? And we're feeling all kinds of things toward them. The first thing that we need to do in the process is we need to identify with the person that we need to forgive. I think that's what took pity on him means, right? If you want to avoid being twisted or controlled by unforgiveness, I think you've got to start to feel what this passage describes as pity, which is kind of a weak word in our translation, I think it's much more than simply feeling sorry for someone, right? 
pity can have sort of a negative connotation where we look down on the other person. I think the language of the scriptures means a little bit more like to have your heart go out to somebody, to have your heart extended to them. What does that mean? I think it means to see yourself in their place. We need to begin to identify with another person's capacity to sin against another person. The internal work of identifying with other person who's hurt you to work towards seeing more of your similarities than of all of your differences, right? It's so natural for us to try to alienate the other people who do harm to us, to other them, to make them so different from us, so radically separate from us, to maybe not even make them human beings in that moment because unforgiveness is so much easier to hold and to manage if I can effectively other the person who sinned against me, right? One of the things we like to do is we like to accentuate those differences. We say things to ourselves. I would never do that to someone. You ever heard that? What a terrible person they are. Dot, dot, dot. I can't believe how anyone could ever do such a thing. What kind of person? You see what's happening? I'm breaking them down, making them less than. I'm separating myself so that I'm the good person and they're the wicked person. And as I do that, I can more easily justify my own feelings of harm or hatred or hurt, however those feelings are happening to us. I think one of the things that happens is we make caricatures of other people. You guys remember what a caricature is? If you've been to Disneyland recently, you go to Knott's, you go to any of those places, there are these artists. I remember having one of these as a kid and feeling mortified, right? Because what a caricaturist does so uh, skillfully is they look at you and they take the one feature on your body that you've been trying to hide your whole life, right? (laughs) They take the one thing that you're self-conscious about, that you're like contouring, that you're growing your hair out to cover up. You know what I'm talking about. You're doing all the things. They take that one thing and they go, oh yeah, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make that one feature larger than life. So that when you look at the character, all you see is your ears. Right? All you see are your little tiny eyes and this giant face. Right? Your big nose, your prominent chin, your cleft chin, whatever it is, right? And we have these caricatures. I think that's what we do spiritually and emotionally to people who sin against us. We see them and we create a caricature of them based upon their sin or their struggle. This is the, the scarlet letter A, Hester Prynne, right? We take that and we make them wear it. And every time we see them, and every time we talk about them, and every time we think about them, every time we retell the story to ourselves or to other people, we begin to make that caricature larger and larger and larger until that person is nothing more than the sin that they've committed. Are you with me? And I've effectively dehumanized this person. 
I've made them into the thing that I feel justified to revile so I can sleep at night and hold my anger and hold my frustration. I think as we think about ourselves, we do this internally, don't we? We identify ourselves with our own sin. Guilt and shame are really powerful things that people hold within themselves when they suffer the consequences of their own sinfulness, their own choices, their own disobedience toward others around them. And so self-forgiveness becomes a really important part of this journey as well. And we need to recognize that sometimes we identify too closely with our brokenness and not closely enough with our forgiveness and our loveliness and the fact that we are loved and pursued and sacrificed for on behalf of Jesus. And so perhaps we need to deconstruct our own pain differently if we are the ones that need forgiveness. We need to begin to see that we are more than the sins that we commit. We are more than the mistakes that we have made and that we are dynamic people worthy of forgiveness, capable of growing, capable of moving forward and past the things that sometimes hinder and hold us, right? And just as we need to stop telling the stories of others against us, we need to top, stop telling the stories to ourselves of the things that we've done and the ways that we've made mistakes. We need to stop that narrative from repeating itself and creating our own caricature. Are you with me? These are the stories that need to stop. The same thing happens. Miroslav Volf says this, one of my favorite quotes. Forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans and I exclude myself from the community of sinners. So easy to self-justify ourselves when we see ourselves as incapable of doing the things that other people do, right? The instant we start feeling like we're some better version of humanity than the people that have sinned against us, that hierarchy is what causes forgiveness to flounder, right? Because that's when I can hold people and hold their sins over them more effectively. You can stay mad at someone only if you see yourself as superior to them, or as incapable of the things that they have done. And yet we have this great equalizer in the gospel, don't we? If we hold our theology well, we have these phrases, like in Romans 3.23, we don't have a slide for this, Mitchell, the great equalizer of the gospel, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For all we like sheep have gone astray, each of us to his own way. Isaiah 53. So we've all failed. We've all messed up, and we've all messed up on, you know, a grand scale. In fact, this parable is a parable about money and debt, monetary debt. And there's this weird moment in the passage, and, and, and it's a kind of unforgivable debt. Did you catch this? Right? You read the story, and there's a servant who owes his master 10,000 bags of gold. I don't know how big these bags are but we're talking a whole lot of gold, 
In fact, some of your translations, some of you will remember this story as the parable of the talents. And you hear of a talent and a bag of gold as kind of this sort of equivalency of a talent. A talent is like a year's wages, right? So a bag of gold is like a year's wages, just to give this some context. And I looked it up, and this startled me. The average, average household income in the state of California in Q3 of 2020 was $106,916. was the average income in the state of California Q3 2020, right in the heart of the pandemic. So take that and multiply by 10,000, and you end up with metaphorically, a cosmic number, right? Just a galactic number of debt. And what this speaks to us is that we have unforgivable debt, you and me. We're born with cosmic, unforgivable debt. And we're all born under the weight of that. And it has nothing to do with the quality of the life that you live or how we perceive others. Biblically speaking, we all have a caricature of brokenness that we carry within us. That's the bad news. The good news is that Jesus has offered us a path forward to relieve us of that cosmic debt. And he offers us a pathway then to relieve what feels like the unforgivable debt that other people incur toward us as we live this life. Cosmic debt, gross mismanagement, gigantic sum of money, and yet he does this incredible thing, this king that says, uh, you owe me more money than you know how to count. He takes pity on him, and he does the second thing, friends. He cancels the debt. Cancels it. I think this is actually the really hard part. Here's the heart of what I think it means to forgive. Here's where I think forgiveness feels really challenging, because I think what the Bible teaches us about how to do forgiveness is going to be vastly different from what we think is our natural tendency in terms of handling forgiveness, from the little things to the big things. He cancels the debt. And when he say cancel the debt, it means he's actually paying it himself, right? Because debts don't just go poof, disappear, right? All of a sudden, I'm out 10,000 bags of gold, and you're responsible, but I'm going to cancel the debt. It doesn't mean that magically this 10,000 bags of gold are, are no longer missing. The king is doing something here. He's absorbing the debt himself out of his own wealth, absorbing the debt, canceling it toward the servant. You see this? Right? This is not magic. We're not wishing it away. We're not pretending like it never happened. We're actually looking at squarely, counting down to the dollar, and saying, this is what you owe me, and the king is writing canceled or paid in full, and he's taking that debt upon himself. 
That's not the same thing as it just going away. I think that's what forgiveness is, friends. When we offer forgiveness, we're absorbing this into ourselves in partnership with Jesus. We're taking it and canceling the debt of the other person. Not all debts are monetary, of course. Most of them, I think, have to do with other factors. Emotional, relational stuff. And we absorb that as well. We hold that within ourselves in the process. Our natural response is to take revenge, right? I know that's what human beings, if we're honest, in our most basic selves, that's what we like to do. We like to take revenge. You're either going to make them pay somehow, some way, the actual debt, or if it's emotional, we try to hurt them, we talk bad about them, we want to confront them, really let them have it. We secretly hope that bad things will happen to them. We cheer within ourselves when those bad things actually do happen. We feel a twinge of guilt, but the caricature is so clear. It's easy for us to erase that guilt, justify ourselves for feeling poorly about the misfortunes of another person. And when we do that, friends, we put ourselves in a kind of prison. And we twist our own hearts into hearts that look more like Satan than more like Jesus. And we allow the vicious cycle of violence and of revenge and of justification to keep churning over and over again. And the alternative is this. You pay, your, you pay the debt yourself. You refuse to do what comes naturally. You refuse to play the story. You refuse to tell your friend that's going to have your back, even if you're wrong. You refuse to tell the story. And you stop it within yourself. And you say, no, I'm not going to give energy to the things that bring me harm. I'm not going to give power to my desire for revenge. I'm not going to rally others to my cause so that I can feel more justified in the ways that I want to get back at this other person in my life. I'm going to make a choice to stop playing the tape in my head until my blood boils. I'm going to refuse to deny bitterness and hatred and contempt in my own heart. We pay the debt ourselves in our willingness to take that to the cross and to dispense whatever grace we can manage in that moment. It is an act of the will, not something that happens over time if you let it lie. If you let it lie, it doesn't go away. If you try to bury it, it doesn't go away. If you try to stuff it into that box that you've got deep down in your soul, it doesn't go away. It just gets angrier.
actually. You don't wake up one day and you experience this. I think it's an ongoing act of the will. It's actually a daily, maybe even moment by moment thing that you have to hold. And you've got to get to know it. I think you've got to befriend it. You've got to welcome it in your life rather than shun it. You've got to do the opposite thing than what your nature tells you to do. You've got to invite it into your life, sit it down at the table, offer it a cup of coffee, and hang out with your unforgiveness. Are you with me? Sounds like the most ridiculous idea ever. But I'll tell you what, this is the way the gospel works itself out in us. There's this other common view that's circulated in our society, and it says this. You grant forgiveness when you feel it. Have you ever had, said that to yourself? I'm not ready. I'm not ready. What they really mean is, I'm not willing. I don't want to. And to some degree, that's okay. I'm not going to poo-poo on that notion. But I'll say this. The gospel calls us to grant forgiveness before we feel it. We grant forgiveness before we feel it. And the reason that we do this, friends, is that we begin to feel it only in response to an act of the will to pursue it. We only experience the grace of forgiveness ourselves, the power to accomplish it in our lives, toward ourselves and toward others, only after we take the step of faith and will to move ourselves in that direction. Are you with me? It's really important that you hear this. Because forgiveness doesn't get activated in our lives until we move toward it. And then weird floodgates open because Jesus wants forgiveness for you and for your friendships and for your relationships, for the lives of others around you more than anything in the world. But the thing that unlocks the door and opens that pathway is your willingness to move toward it as an act of the will, as an act of faith. It says, I'm going to do this because I know that it's right. Not because I want to. And Jesus meets us in that place. There's this incredible quote that I was reminded of. Uh, I'm going to butcher her name. Joanne Borostenko. She's a PhD. She's a psychologist and uh, works in interdisciplinary work within the hospital and is kind of a mindfulness chaplain, wrote a book called 70 Times 7. It's a great name. And he says, she says this, any attempt to access the human capacity for forgiveness is guaranteed to enhance the immune system and increase the physical, spiritual, mind-body balance. Forgiveness can actually make you whole. Not only spiritually, but physically as well. We go back to this notion of spiritual pain. Are you hearing me? 
forgiveness can actually heal you, literally. Literally. This is her observation, and I think it's a powerful one. Jesus' story shows that we need to identify with the person that sinned against us. We need to cancel the debt. And there's a third thing that has to happen here. We have to have a willingness to let them go. We have to let them go. There is a temptation that we feel, I think, to hold on to our places of pain and unforgiveness. And that sounds like something that no rational person would do, and yet there is an odd comfortability I found in meeting with people and person after person who hold on to pain. There is a familiarity to pain. There is a familiarity to dysfunction. There is a familiarity to unforgiveness that I think we hold on to more tightly than we'd like to admit. And we hold on to those things, I think, for a variety of reasons. But in part, I think it's easier for us to hold on to our identification as a victim, as someone who has been sinned against, hold that power over somebody else, and hang on to that identification rather than doing the work of healing. Because of the work of healing is very difficult and scary. And we would much rather stay with something familiar than pursue the possibility of something better knowing that we may not get there. And it keeps us stuck in that place. Pain is a strange and familiar friend. Unforgiveness becomes the strange and familiar friend. Because healing, friends, is hard. And doing the work is hard. And we have to be uniquely motivated to try to move ourselves out of that stuck place and into a new place to do the things that we know we must do and yet we don't want to do. Romans 12, 18 to 20 gives us this, I think, painful reality, reminder. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. I acknowledge that that's not always possible, by the way. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. There is a letting go process inside of this and saying, you know what, I'm just going to have to figure out how to let go and let God here. And we ask ourselves, where is our motivation? Where is the power for that process? Where does it come from? The will to do what is unnatural, to do what doesn't come easily to us, to begin to repaint the caricatures of people that we have in our lives and ourselves. I think there's a need for the recognition of our own forgiveness in a recognition of our own brokenness. And there's this sort of uh, thing that happens. Luke 7:47 in another parable that perhaps we'll hear about later. Jesus is confronted with a sinful woman. Everybody knows this woman's sin. She's famous. 
they made a caricature of her. Uh, and they said, therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. And there's a reality that if we have a weak experience of grace, a weak experience of love, and a weak experience of forgiveness in our own lives, it becomes very difficult for us to extend grace and forgiveness to others because we lack the capacity within ourselves. We just don't have those muscles. So maybe there's some pre-work that has to happen in forgiveness to cultivate and develop those muscles within ourselves to learn how to walk before run. I need to identify with my own need and increase my own capacity to recognize God's forgiveness of me, his love of me, his acceptance of me. Colossians 3.12 says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. There's sort of an externality to our willingness to put on the qualities required to forgive. There is a need for us to take something out of a drawer, perhaps, or go to the store and get something and clothe ourselves in it. Do you see this picture playing itself out? I need to find something outside of myself and integrate it into my life like clothing so that I can have the capacity to extend the qualities of forgiveness that I need for myself and for others. There's a learning curve here. Are you with me? At its core, there are these basic recognitions as followers of Jesus, as people who are entering into the presence of Jesus that we need to tell ourselves over and over again, that we need to speak to one another. And it's this, that you are already loved. You are already accepted. You are already forgiven. You are already received. And you can break this down and nerd it out all you want, metaphysically, theologically, you can make it crazy. But we need to just sit and hear that for ourselves. We need to receive that word for ourselves. And we need to recognize when the Lord brings it to the surface and he kind of pushes us and says, do you know it? Do you believe it? Do you receive it? And we just need to be honest with him in that moment. You say, no, I don't really. I know it in my head, but I don't know if I believe it fully. I know that it's true, but I only think I know that theologically and metaphysically and eschatologically, throw all these crazy words out, but I don't know if I know that it matters for me, for me, for me. And we need to just sit with that word. And we need to sing those songs, friends. And we need to come to the table, like we're going to do in a minute. And we're going to receive the benediction, that good word. You see why we do it? This ritual is so critical for us because we need to know this in the core of our being because this is what informs every moment of every day. It informs how we love. It informs how we work. It informs how we care for our family. It informs how we grieve and how we lose and how we succeed. It's underlying all of it. So I invite you 
I invite you to do the scary work, to do the work that we don't want to do, knowing that we can, one, do it together and that we can do it in the presence of a loving Savior who says, I'm already there, friends. I'm already there. He's inviting us into that space of forgiveness. He says, I'm already there, way ahead of you. And he's set up a table, and he's poured coffee, he's poured tea, and he's invited you. He says, come sit with me, get to know me, hang out with me, welcome me, and we can do it together. Let's pray.